expanding the Nerdosphere, talking on everything you want to hear. From comics to cosplay, from the cinematic universe to fan films and everything in between, it's time to get down and nerdy. Here are your hosts, James Witham and Nick Pataglia. Glad you found us, nerds. It's episode 79 of the Down and Nerdy podcast, where, you know, it's harder than you think these days to find somebody that's willing to jump out of a big birthday cake. <laughs> that, that is true. You can't just Google it or look it up in the yellow pages. It's just not that easy. Well, not just that. I mean, the whole girl jumping out of the cake is kind of overplayed. You know, now it's like, do I want a girl dressed as Harley Quinn or Peggy Carter or who else do I want? You know, maybe, who knows? Maybe the Hulk and the Tutu. I don't know. <laughs> Lurch, was she in there before you picked? <laughs> <laughs> yes. I'm James with him alongside. The Merc with one arm, Nick Pataglia. The, the now older. The older, yeah. Yeah, I uh, celebrated my birthday on Monday. So again, thank you, everybody. Uh, 27 years young, three years till I'm 30, and then it just all ends and goes down from there. Hey, I've been 30 for like six years now. Again, as I said, it all ends and goes down from there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> for those who don't know, when I when Nick and I talk off air, I've been warning him about what happens after you turn 30 because anybody that's 30 years old now you know because you had somebody older that told you like once you hit 30 you're not gonna be able to do this anymore that anymore and you're like yeah whatever guy and then it happens to you you're like you're like the ghost from chris from birthday's future like spirit who are the who who was the downfall of this man who is this man they talk about it's me I'm just saying, eating a piece of pepperoni pizza when you're 25 is a lot different than eating a piece of pepperoni pizza after you turn 30. That's all I'm saying. And you, and people, I mean, what, if the Ninja Turtles ended up hitting 30, that I'm just saying, Michelangelo's going to have heartburn. <laughs> it's just so fun. I mean, my knees are just starting to hurt. I mean, that's just from playing years of well, football. Well, you, you tore your ACL, so there's that. Yeah, there's that. It's just, it's just, uh. Yeah, it, it, like I said, my body is just, it's, it's breaking down, man. Like, once you hit 27, I'm just like, now nah, I just wake up. I'm like, oh, God. <laughs> yeah, but unlike our bodies, this show just keeps building stronger yeah. and stronger <laughs> because we've got another big guest this week. That's right. This week we have Martin Giro, who, of course, is the creator and executive producer for NBC's Blind Spot, which can be seen next Monday, which is September 21st at 10 p.m. Eastern Time. We were talking to him and just what's what was it like to shoot in New York City. And, you know, it, this is probably one of the biggest shows NBC has coming out this fall, James. Yeah, definitely, because, of course, we know and love Jamie Alexander, Lady Sif from, from Thor, and, of course, the Avengers movies and stuff like that. She even had a little bit of an appearance uh, in the uh, one of the end credit scenes. I think it was Guardians of the Galaxy or something like that. Or it was the no, end credit scene for something. It was end credit. I know what you're talking about. It was when, when she was went, with the Collector. She was with the Collector, yeah, yeah. And they wanted to give him the ether. Yeah. Uh, I want to say it was... Was it Thor? Was it might Dark World? Thor. It might it have been Dark. Yeah, it that's Dark what World. it was. There you go. Now we got it. There but, we go. But, uh, I mean, we've, we've, known, we've wanted her to be spotlighted in something. It's not fair that she has to constantly be in the friend zone for Natalie Portman. She's too badass for that. You need to give her something better to do. And now Blind Spot is that opportunity, I think, for Jamie Alexander. Exactly. So we're going to talk to, of course, Martin about that. But come up next. Oh, boy. We got some uh, couple new comics for you this week. And there's some pretty... Big titles, at least mine is, in my eyes, of course, brings me back to my childhood. But more on that next on Down and Nerdy. Hey, this is Jeff Lemire, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. 
Well, it's that time, nerds. We got those long boxes. We discuss what we're reading this week. Of course, this week is, as always, as every week, is brought to you by the fine folks over at Fantasy Escape Comics and Cards and Aragona Boulevard in Virginia Beach. Go see Bob and all the great and amazing things he has for your nerd heart and the nerds that you love in your life. So, James, I'm going to go first this week. You know what? Actually, you know what? No. You should go first this week, because I got got a special introduction for mine. Oh, wow. Okay, well, we're going to switch things up a little bit. And I decided to go with Dark Horse this week, and something that's not out yet. You're not even going to really get your hands on it until October. It's Laura Croft and the Frozen Omen, number one, which is kind of a spinoff series of their their regular Tomb Raider run. Uh, The script is done by Corina Bechko, pencils done by Randy Green, inks by Andy Owens, and colors by Michael Atea. And... I got to be honest. You know, I was a little bit critical of the of the original, yeah, uh, of the original run, just because it just didn't seem like it really fit. I will say right. that the art for this is totally different from the main run. Laura Croft does not look exactly like she does in the game. Now, if that bothers you and you can't get past it, I'm just warning you of that right now. It did, didn't didn't really bother me at first. It was like, huh, okay, but it didn't it didn't bug me right. throughout the issue. What did kind of bug me a little bit was that there's a lot of confusion going on in this book. And here's the thing. Have you ever read something and you're just a little confused? You're like, I'm not really sure what's happening. But then you're wondering if that was what they were going for. Right. So I don't know if maybe that's exactly what they were going for. And I'm supposed to feel this way. <laughs> now, but this, I'm conflicted. This, well, is this supposed to coincide with the game at all that's coming out? No, it doesn't seem like it does to me. No, okay. No, it seems it seems like a totally outside story. As a matter of fact, the, it gets kind of a weird start where obviously she's on a cliffside again because you know that's just kind of where she hangs out. That's like Starbucks for her, apparently. Wait, is it is it cliffside like in the snow? No, it's not in the snow this time because okay. they're in, okay. they're in Istanbul. So I don't well, the reason why option. Well, the reason why the reason why I ask because the game starts off with her at cliffside of the snow. Yeah, so no. Like, if it's that, then maybe it's like a flashback or something like that. Or yeah, no, this is definitely not that. But the funny thing All is right. the is that the first few pages of this issue don't yeah. really fit with the rest of it. I don't know if it's going to be one of those things where they'll well, they'll come back to it later, or maybe they're just trying to establish a certain relationship at the beginning of the book. Maybe there's that. But it just didn't seem to fit. So we started out in Istanbul, then we're at the British Museum after that, and then she ends up in Belize. It's a lot of traveling in this first issue. Yeah. And then there's basically, basically there's an artifact that goes missing, and they're trying to figure out who, who took it, and then they find out who took it. But it's a little weird because it's almost like there's an out-of-body experience thing going on. And again, I don't want to give away too much because uh, we want you to pick it up and judge for yourself, but... Ah, and we kind of figure out who who a baddie is in this, but we don't really know what his function is. So I guess there weren't a whole lot of answers right. in this first issue, and it, it was a little bit confusing. And again, if that was done on purpose, bravo. But uh, if it wasn't, then I, I'm just not sure. So I'm cautious to give it a rating one way or another. I will say the art is good, even though it's not exactly like the game. Right. Uh, the art is good, probably a little bit better than uh, the art from Tomb Raider number one that I reviewed last year on the show. Of course, it's been a year, so... Yeah. Um, the story... I, I just don't know, man. I, I'm very, very on the fence right now. So I would say that I would give this another issue for sure. Yeah. Just to see, because I think by issue two, we're going to figure out, okay, is this where they're going? Is this kind of what they're going for? Or is this just... 
there's the story just not really picking up. So right now, it's a pickup for me. But like Laura Croft, I've got one arm on the rock, and I'm not sure if I'm going to tumble off of it. Yeah. So uh, right now, I'm saying it's a pickup because I think the art's good. I don't think there was anything wrong with the writing per se. Right. Uh, I just I'm not sure if that's what they're going for. So if that's what they're going for, I could see leaning this more towards a pull. But if it's not, then I would lean more towards a drop. So right now, it's a pickup for me. Yeah. So I mean, that's that's the thing uh, with, with this comic is. Now, who is it written by? It's written by Karina Bechko, and I actually checked to see if she was going to be involved in writing uh, Rise of the Tomb Raider. All she's not involved in that. So, uh, Dark Horse has been pretty good about that. I know they've got the uh, Mirror's Edge Catalyst comic, where they have the writer for Mirror's Edge, the game, writing the comic. Yeah. And the same thing with your Mad Max last week, where we had George Miller. So their consistency was there. So consistency not here, but I think one of the reasons they did that is because they're going outside of the actual game and they're trying to tell a different story. So whether or not it's going to work long term, I guess we'll have to see an issue too. Okay. So now it's my turn and there's only one way I can introduce this. From the days of long ago, from uncharted regions of the universe comes a legend, the legend of Voltron, defender of the universe, a mighty robot loved by good, feared by evil. As Voltron's legends grew, peace settled across the galaxy. On planet earth, the galaxy Alliance was formed Together with the good planets of the solar system, they maintained peace throughout the universe until a new horrible menace threatened the galaxy. Voltron was needed once more. This is a story of superforce of space explorers. Entrusted by the Alliance with the ancient secret of how to assemble Voltron, defender of the universe. I suddenly have an image of you in this tiny little booth. Yeah. With one of those microphones with the halos around it that says news on the top. <laughs> I got I got a real flashback to audio drama type stuff from the fifties just now. Nice. That's not a bad thing. No. Not no. a bad thing at all. But when I saw this title come out from Dynamite, I was pretty excited about it too. I'm like, hey, we're doing a Voltron comic and it's by someone we just happen to know. Exactly. The full title of this is, of course, Voltron from the Ashes from Dynamite. And, of course, the writer is the man of a million jobs and titles himself, Colin Bunn. And I bet you as he's listening to this now, he's probably writing something else. I mean, does, does he eat... I don't know. <laughs> I'm just trying to figure out how he's going to have time. I mean, is there? does he have, like, that dragonfly thing where it'll type for you yeah. when, when you talk? So does he Does he sleep right? Yeah, right. I mean, because you'd think he'd have to with all the books that he writes right now. <laughs> yeah. He, I'm just picturing Colin sleeping at night. He just wakes up in the middle of the night like, idea! And he just goes and writes something else. I don't know why, but I picture him sleeping upside down like Michael Keaton in the first Batman movie. I don't know why. <laughs> or like, I don't or like know. Uh, uh, the Coneheads, pretty much. Yeah, I, I don't know why. It's just weird. But uh, but I'm sure that he does a great job with this, because he does with pretty much everything else. And uh, the illustration is done by Blackie Shepard. And the colors are done by Adriano Augusto. And the letters are done by Rob Steen. Now, I'll start with the art first. Now, the art by Shepard is very it's very inconsistent okay um there's it starts off like amazing looking like really really amazing like detailed and great then as you get towards diving in later part of the comic even as you get into probably about page five or so it feels like it actually looks like maybe it's the colors as well Mm -hmm. but it feels like every page every few pages 
Shepard was going for a different art look. So you don't think this was one of those cases where it was like a rush to deadline kind of thing? You think no. it was just, I want to change things up a little bit in later pages? It just feels like that. Because like okay. I said, you, you open up the beginning and, you know, you open up the, the, to the first page and you see Hagar, the mother of monsters, pretty much flying around space alone. It's like glass casket, pretty much. Mm-hmm. And it's very detailed. It's very, going back to another called Bun Book, very Sinestro looking, you know? Okay. Then you get into like the later pages, and it looks kind of like, and it's nothing against people who worked on this, but the Transformers from IDW kind of look. And okay. It, and then it just delves in different styles, and it looks. You're not. Like, you're not saying it's bad. You're just saying no, it's, it's, just, it's different from what you had in the beginning. I'm not saying it's bad. I'm saying that I was as a reader, it took me very much off guard. Well, you don't expect that. You expect if one person's doing the art. I mean, last week you had like six people on the book that you read that did the art. So if you've got the same person, you don't expect that. Well, especially because, you know, I'm I'm flipping through this book and it's like the – towards the end you see, you know, Hagar and the the two panel – and it's it's back-to-back panels with Hagar and one panel looks totally different than like one page – of art looks totally different to the, to the next page behind it. Wow, that's that's crazy. And it's all in the face. And it's like the one page, it's on page 23, by the way. And one, like the one page looks all flattened, like, you know, not a lot of detail. Uh-huh. And then the next one, it's they're a little bit lighter. And her fucking cloak is a different color, too. That's interesting. So may, maybe the colors are, are lending to a little bit of this then, if that if that's what you're saying. It just, I mean, like I said, the art's not bad when you're reading it. It's like the colors sometimes don't match okay. at all. And I'm looking at this, like, I'm looking at the book still. And I'm, like, there's one panel where the guy's jacket's green, and then the next panel, his jacket's like black and silver. So it's not like a shadowing issue or anything, right? Where they're turned a different direction, so the 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 lighter the the lighting conditions might be different or something. Yeah, like no, they're, it's, they're inside wow. of a ship. Okay, yeah, that's. Uh... Wow. Okay. Um, I mean, I'll let you look at it, and you'll you'll decide for yourself. But you know, the story too is, of course, this this takes place. Uh, it actually opens up in a really cool, probably about five six page fight scene with Voltron, and okay, nice. and it's already assembled. And he's taking on uh, these you know Robo attacks and everything else like that, and pretty much. You don't. It's a, you find out it's kind of a dr- it's a dream from Hagger, and it's pretty much you don't find out till later. Uh, it's I mean you could tell from the title of the book, you know, Rise from the Ashes and stuff like that. Mm. This is pretty much the last battle of the team from the TV show, and it ends. And it doesn't the end? The dream ends, but you don't really know the ending. It just takes you out of it, and it mm-hmm. looks like they're about to die. And then and then it fast forwards two hundred years later. Oh wow, that's 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 a hell of a fast forward. Yeah. Um so of course this follows like a new series of cadets and stuff like that. And uh here's the thing with the writing though, is I feel that even though I'm on issue one, and don't get me wrong, I like the book. However, when you the way this is going with these arcs, and I already feel like I know what's gonna happen throughout the okay. entire series. Okay. Again. You get introduced to this new fleet of cadets who, again, they haven't chosen, the monks haven't chosen who's going to pilot Voltron again. And you've seen Voltron is like buried underneath dirt and stuff like that because he hasn't been used in 200 years. Um, but it's like, 
of course, she opens up on this one uh, recruit who is pretty much like the bad guy. Like, I go against the rules kind of thing. And he is, doesn't like the monk's way of thinking. And then he's got this whole crew with him. They're saying, oh, you're kind of an asshole kind of thing. And it's like, okay, it's going very Guardians-esque kind of thing where you got this one Star-Lord-esque kind of character. But then again, it's like, okay, this seems to get selected for Voltron. They, you know, I'll just paraphrase what I think is going to happen as the series goes on. The team gets that that has the kid that the the guy the kid that goes against all the rules and everything. They're gonna get picked to pilot Voltron. They're gonna have an out of it, and somehow by the end of the book, they all come together, realize their differences, and they defeat uh, Hager pretty much. Well, I mean, it's hard when you kind of see something like that coming, and but does that make you not want to? go forward or does it make you want to see if you're right kind of thing? Cause it's a double edged sword there. It makes me want to go forward, but it's kind of one of those things like, you know, I'll, I'll wait till like, you know, issue five and I'll just catch up later on, you know? Yeah, I understand. It's not something like, it's not, it's not, I'm not saying it's a bad series. It's just, you know, when you read, when you're somebody like us who, who read comics, pretty much, want to say not really for a living, but for what we do with this podcast, just in our personal lives, you read, yeah. you're, when you're reading five plus 10 plus comics a week, you know, it's really, really hard to just not see things coming. Well, certain and stuff like series that. get lost in the shuffle too. Yeah. I mean, you've got the series that you love, and I mean, I know Sinestro's from Colin is one of those that you love. So that's going to be one of the first ones that you pick up when you get your pull. But and then you find other series, and I have the same problem with the comics that I read, where it's like I find myself five, sometimes six, seven issues behind because I'm reading this other stuff. Kind of yeah. Thing. And then you've got new series like the Paybacks and stuff that you pick that up and you want to read that immediately. You know? Exactly. It's, like I said, I'm not saying that this series, this, this book, you know, you know, Voltron from the Ashes, number one, is bad. I'm just saying that for me, it's back burner. We're both having the same problem, it sounds like, this week. It kind of does. But, it's, I mean, it's sim- but for different reasons. But, but, but my, my rating for this is a pickup. Because, like I said, it's the, the art, even though it's different and it looks weird and stuff like that, it 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 it's the colors is what makes it. I think. I think the colors. Remember when we had Jeff Lemire on? He said he had somebody color his stuff and kind of yeah changed the way how he viewed his art. Mm-hmm. That's the same thing. The the guy, you know, Shepard when he did this, he had his art looking one way, but when the way that Augusto colored it made it look totally differently. I got you. Okay. Um. And again, that's that's a that's a pickup for me. So we both had a couple of pickups this week. But like I said, it's 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 not bad. It's just it's just something I, I put on a back burner. So that was Voltron that you read from Dynamite Comics this week, and then I read Laura Croft Frozen Omen from Dark Horse. Both of which you can pick up. Well, one of them you have to wait until October. You can actually get Voltron now yep. at your local shop if you're looking for it. Exactly. Now, if you do like our reviews, you say well, I want more of them. You don't want to wait till every show each week to find out what we're doing and what we're reviewing. Go to our website, downerypodcast.com. There is a link. That is pretty much like, you know, a what we're reading link. And James and I, we write two reviews on different books. So pretty much we're doing four reviews every week. Two yep, you're so- going to read and then two you're going to hear on the show. And we like to do different publishers when we can, too. So we try and give you a nice broad spectrum of stuff that maybe's out, maybe it's not coming out for another week or two, but we will let you know exactly what you should be reading and maybe what you should be watching, too, because coming up next this week in Geektainment, we're going to be talking about another bastard, and this time it's not Jon Snow on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hey, guys, this is Dexter Darden from the Maze Runner series, and you're listening to Down and Nerdy Podcast.
Well, there's only been one famous bastard in geek culture so far, but maybe not coming up because, Nick, we got a new show on FX that we're going to review now called The Bastard Executioner that's actually gotten a lot of talk, mainly because its creator also did Sons of Anarchy, I think. Exactly. Yeah, Kurt Sutter, he did Sons of Anarchy, and he also he plays a, a, a character called the Dark Mute in this series, of course, The Bastard Executioner on FX, and... You know, we're at that time now in television where a lot of stuff, I mean, it's always been the thing with television lately where, you know, things imitate other things. And right now, you know, Game of Thrones is really big on HBO. And so this is trying to imitate Game of Thrones. However, it doesn't really imitate it all that well. It actually does a very poor job of doing that. Um, you know, and, and I mean, let's just dive right to it. Uh, you know, it, this is a medieval show, so of course you're going to have bouts of brutality, but with Game of Thrones, even though Game of Thrones is graphic, even though there are, oh, very much so. even though there is brutality and horrendous things happening, there is true meaning to these things happening. There is a reason these things happen. Yeah. With Bastion Executioner, it's just we're just going to be brutal just to be brutal. And at the times, dude, it was hard to watch because it was just very, very, like, very hard to shit. watch. I mean. There's a phrase that you hear a lot called a method to the madness. And I think that Game of Thrones captures that probably better than most shows on TV. And that's one of the reasons that people love it. But with this, there was no method to it at all. Like, first of all, the Executioner really, and this is going to be spoiler heavy, by the way. The yeah. Executioner is not even really the main character in the show no, until he takes the identity of the Executioner later on in the show. So when he's like back shaving that dude or whatever the hell he's doing. It was hard to watch. Uh, I think he was like pulling his back like open kind of thing. Right, that's what I'm saying. But, but, yeah. But what but, was the point of that? Well, yeah, it was the point of showing him doing his... The thing is, when you have something called the Bash Execution, I thought it was going to be a show like... Especially in the fucking credits. It's like, oh, this is going to be a show about an executioner. Like, yeah. legit executioner's day-to-day -day life. But it's not that. It's something totally different. And again, it's trying to like... What they're trying to do is I'm like, wow... They're literally trying to go with this whole reverse Ned Stark type of, of thing. Well, the, much. the thing with me is is that one of the, my biggest problems was, was with this show. Yeah. I would say 90% of my problem with the show was the way they overdid oh, yeah. everything. And not to mention the characters didn't have a reason. Like the Baron no. in this, what was his reason for doing what he does in the, in the pilot? Other than he's just an asshole. Now, people say, well, Joffrey was his own. But Joffrey had a reason for being a yeah, dick. Yeah, exactly. But, and here's the other thing, too. The thing with the, the with the original executioners and his family being all mean to his kids and his wife and stuff like he that. He wasn't mean. He beat the shit Right, exactly. So, I mean, that's to your What's point, though. Reason? What was the reason for that? There was no back background given for that other than this guy's an executioner and he's an asshole anyway so let's just make him be even more of an asshole sort of thing so i understand that in the end it worked out because that was one of the reasons that he was that uh wilkins was allowed to steal his identity in the first place i get that but i don't know about you dude but going away a minute for from the whole overdoing thing were yeah. you just confused at times it was like, can can he see? Yeah. Is he a, is he a seer of some kind? Can he see the future, or can he see spirits, or something? And then yeah. they just totally go away from it. I don't know what the hell was going on. I have no idea, dude. Like, yeah, I was confused a little bit, but I just was going on like, wait a minute, what's this? Or you know, and for example, like, okay, well, what's 
you know, listening to all these different kingdoms. Wait, wait, they're in one shire? What's going on? I thought it was like yeah. different, you know, towns, whatever, but it's all just one place. Like, you know, not like a Westeros, but just like a shire kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, they're, like, they're distances going from each other, but and, still. Yeah, it's like, what's going on? And, and, and who are these people? Like, like, again, it comes down to lack of, uh, of plot and lack of vision that these characters have. Like, what's the overall thing you're trying to get across with these right. characters? But it's not like they didn't have time. I mean, the, the pilot uh, was the two pilot hours. Was like two the hours. first half hour dragged so bad. So you would think that with that first half hour, with it dragging out as much as it did, they would use that to set up and give you a little bit of character development of what's going on. I mean, they, they do give you some character development for Wilkin Brattle. I mean, in the beginning, I mean, you sort of, get, okay, he was a knight in the, in the, in the King's court. I get it. They thought he died. I get it. So, yeah. I mean, there's for that character, you kind of get it, but for all, all the others, pretty much, especially your point about the Baron, what was the point of that? Yeah. Other just... than to just be a dick. It's just that, that I don't think I've heard the word faith used so many times yeah, in the I show. I know, right? I know. Like, we must use our faith. We must use our faith. Like, I understand back in the times, back in the days, a lot of things were religious, but that was just like, it's it's kind of like, you know, a noun, a verb, faith. Noun, verb, faith. That's how it was written, pretty much. Well, And, and we get that back then. Things were brutal, okay? Yeah. It's not like things were all sunshine and roses no. or anything. So we're not saying that. What I'm saying is is that even Game of Thrones has had cutaways from certain things, okay? Yeah. Like, I mean, I'm sorry. Like, I, I know... Well, for example, let's just talk about this now. I Like, for example, Game of Thrones, a very brutal scene is when this princess who's, like, probably not even 10 years old is burned at the stake. Yeah. They don't show – they show her being tied up in the stake being lit on fire. They don't show her burning. Right. Here, they show a 6-year-old or 5-year-old's throat being cut. Not only that, but how about the, the pyramid of bodies that yeah. they had in the, that – that to me – I dude, I'm not, I'm not going to lie. I had to look away. Yeah. I, I absolutely had to look, and I actually fast forwarded through some of that scene. I was watching on my DVR. I had to fast forward through some of it. I'm like, you know what? This is too much. And I'm going to tell you right now, and, and you can call me a pussy or whatever you want, all you want. Not you personally, but anybody listening to the show. <laughs> there's a line, okay? For, you pussy. For everything, I think there's a line. And I think this show crossed the line a couple of times. And the reason that they did that was because they wanted to get chatter about their show. And about and and about on social media and in news in general and people like us talking about the show. But you know what? All that says to me is that you're doing that because you know you don't have a good good content in your show to back it up. So you have to go for shock value over yep. content. And I think that that is what sums up the bastard executioner for me. Yeah, again, it's just a show that's you know based solely on shock. It doesn't have. It's not good. It's very boring. Um, it, again, it tries too hard to be Game of Thrones and it, to the point where it loses out the meaning of what Game of Thrones really does. And I mean, you know, I like Sons of Anarchy, but I mean, Kurt Sutter just. I don't know what he was going for here. I really, and, really don't. And it's funny because if you look at some of the comments uh, on social media, people are kind of trying to compare. Sons of Anarchy to this show, you can't do that. Well, I mean, even it's the same even, guy, you can't well, do yeah. that. Yeah, and even in like the music didn't even match either. Like the, no. music, the, the, the music in the intro credits didn't work out. The credit, the end credits music doesn't work out. You know, it's just and they like use CGI. 
for scenery. Yeah. I mean, really? I, I know that I'm usually the guy that says to you, well, a little CGI is not bad. Here? It's yeah. like, seriously? Come on, you couldn't build a castle or something? Or at least build some sort of a scale for scenery? Well, my thing was just, again, let's compare the Sons of Anarchy really quick. There is a season of Sons of Anarchy where they go to Ireland. Like, okay, you're in Ireland. You're telling me you couldn't go like to Wales or wherever else and shoot around in the castle and get permission to shoot in certain places? Game of Thrones places? is in Ireland right now. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, come on. And this, and now people are saying, oh, well, that's HBO and FX. FX is owned by Fox. Yeah. You mean to tell me Fox doesn't have the money to shoot in Ireland? Come on. Don't, don't give me that. I mean, they, they can do it a little bit more authentic than they did. So, I mean, overacting, overdoing, overly brutal because there was just no content and no direction from the say, show whatsoever. I'm going to say that if Fox can hit, take a $50 million hit in Fantastic Four, they can t- use a few hundred thousand or whatever million, couple million dollars to, you know, make sure they have proper sets built for this, you know, bastard executioner. Exactly. And, and if this show was, and, and again, with the brutality, and people say, well, executioner's in the title. Yeah, okay, that's fine. And when but make co- it about the executioner. Right, exactly. Don't make it about a guy who's supposed to be like a Ned Stark, and then, uh, let's say, then have him say, you know, this identity of, you're this executioner now because you stole this guy's identity in order to get the certain revenge you need, you gotta do it. It's just like, no. Well, honestly, honestly, a show called The Bass Executioner would work much better if it was a Galavant-esque show about an executioner. And you know what's funny is, look at another show on the same network, which is American Horror Story. Any yeah. of them. When they give you a title, like Freak Show or something like that, yeah, they mean it. Yeah, They execute it. I'm not a fan of that show either, because it's a little much for me. But when they say it, they mean it. There's another show that I love on FX called Tyrant. They execute that beautifully because that's what it's about this is not what it's about at all mm-hmm. that but that's just my opinion yeah so let's quickly just give us give it our ratings so on a scale from one to ten what'd you give it uh, i go two yeah i'm gonna have to go two as well because did, did i fantastic four hate it no it was just we didn't fantastic four hate it we were watching this it was just one of the things when we were watching it we were just like Looking at our phones, we're bored. We yeah, I was bored. I legit had to look away a couple of times because of the just sheer unnecessary brutality of the show. I, it's just that's just where I'm at. Sorry. Yeah. Exactly. That's gonna do it for our review of Bash Execution. We come next. We have a whole slew of nerd news and some pretty big titles from DC are not going to see through their entire run. Which ones are they? Well, stay tuned. More Down Nerdy come up next. This is Abby Darkstar, and you're listening to Down and Nerdy Podcast. Well, it's that time, nerds. We go around the interwebs and see what's trending, because it's time for what, James? Nerd News! And, uh, well, our first story in Nerd News is actually kind of, it's, it's one that kind of pissed us off a little bit. It's, it's sad as well. So, five DC Comics series from the main DC Universe line are set to come to an end in the coming months. Most of them are going to be ending in December, except one is going to be ending in November. And the list goes as follows. Uh, Justice League United will reach its end in December with issue issue 16. Of course, it's from writer Jeff Parker and artist Travel Foreman. Uh, The final Gotham by Midnight issue will be issue number 12. That's going to be from Ray Fox and Julio Ferreira. That's going to be ending 
around November, actually, it's actually make, but it's going to have, uh, it's going to be ending around the time that it has the whole year releasing. So it's like, okay, it's gone for yeah. a year. Made us that's something that's really as bad. Lobo ends its run December with issue number 13 from writers Colin Bond and Frank Barberi and artist Robinson Roca, Robinson Roca. Uh, Lobo was one I saw. That was, I don't think it was going to have a long run anyways. Yeah, I, I felt the same way about Justice League United, which I had my poll originally and ended up dropping. Remember, it was supposed to be Justice League Canada, but then they thought they needed a more broader audience, so they went with yeah. Justice League United. And, I mean, they just tried to spotlight smaller characters, especially a certain couple, and it just didn't work out. It, the storylines weren't interesting, so I wasn't surprised to see that go. Gotham by Midnight was another one. It was like... That, that that to me wasn't a good idea from the get, but there was one Nick that really upset us that was on the list, and that was from our buddy Tom King, and it was Omega Man. Exactly. So Omega Man's going to be ending with issue number seven, and the thing that, that bothers us about this is that Omega Man, we don't know why it's being canceled. And no. the thing is, is because it's received tons of critical acclaim. Uh, it's one of, I, I don't know the sales figures on it, but I would figure, it had, I mean, a, a lot of people have to be reading this because everybody's just talking about Kyle Rayner and every, all those other things that they're doing with Omega Man. I don't get why they're canceling this, though. Like, again, no, we, have, um, we have a million Batman books, and really, and this also came around the same time DC announced, we're doing another Harley Quinn spinoff. I'm like, no! Like, it's kind of like my thing with Marvel and Deadpool now. It's like they're, they're, they're really giving way too many comics. Well, and well, here and here's the deal. And we're not just saying this because Tom King was on the show, okay? So let's just get that out there right now. If you read Omega Men, it's a good story. and It's, it's a really good story. It was an interesting story. Yeah, there's so many books that just, when you read them, you're reading them and you enjoy it, but it doesn't grab you. For But for Omega Men, and I'll be honest, I did not expect it to grab me at all but once i started reading it i was like this is a good story and there's depth to it there was just so much progression and everything was so deliberate and remember when we talked to tom king on the show he had ideas for like issue 12 already and at the time we were only i think in issue three yeah so he was that far ahead so he is playing the long game here so to know that and to find out that this title's not going to reach that pinnacle and hopefully we get some sort of a conclusion here yeah but again seven, i just don't get it man but again seven issues it's gonna end issue seven so i mean that's you know five we can all count but that's five issues before his big thing that he had set for issue 12 and it's like i mean who do we blame here <sighs> not not i mean just I th- don't forget catwoman is getting a new uh creative team as well yeah i think they've been they, i think that's th- a book that i think DC wants that book to work, and I think that's pretty apparent because they've had a couple creative changes there. I think they I, really like the character they I want to the, work. They don't do that with Omega Man. I'm, I'm going to say this right now. I think the big issue, not to use a pun, the big problem here is Batman. I think that, you know, everybody can say, well, they blame DC. I think DC's, well, DC's part of it because, they, of course, they are in charge of Batman. But. I think Batman's the main thing because you look at a lot of the comics we have out now. We have what, like Gotham Academy, we have Gotham by Midnight, we have Batman, multiple Batman runs, we have a bunch of Robin runs. Yeah, the Robin runs, else. and you could Harley Quinn throw that in there too. Harley without Quinn, Batman, there's no Harley Quinn. Catwoman, as you just mentioned. It seems as if DC is going so far with Batman. I was thinking every character from Batman, we're getting is we're getting a bunch of Batman spinoffs that's pretty much filling out DC's entire catalog and we're not getting room for 
Omega Men. We're not getting room right. for Justice League United. You know, well, I'll, like play, that. I'll play devil's advocate here. The reason they're doing that is because Batman's selling. People are buying it. People aren't buying the other stuff. So, I mean, at what point do we have to turn the tables back on the comic book readers and purchasers for not sampling some of this other stuff? I mean, well, I'm not Super, that... Superman, they've struggled with Superman for a right. while. That's why they had to put Jeff Johns and, and one... John Romita Jr. on it. Right. And another title I didn't mention uh, was Doomed, of course. That's not going to be ending in December. It's actually probably going to end more likely, they're saying, with issue six in November. Um, again, how long could you go with that? whole storyline right, exactly no, the and they already had that 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 uh dedicated series run yeah. for that too and don't forget that poison ivy is going to get her own limited series either in november or december as well from but, I, Simone. but again and again I, I i'm actually looking forward to that but again it just goes to show my point of i understand batman's selling and stuff like that but to a point what dc is doing is they're giving all these batman titles but they're not coming up with new ideas they're not, right well you know they're not or they're not allowing these new ideas like the omega men to flesh out and to to you know have let tom do his work and finish the series you know and stuff like that so, you know it's, but, it's, it's mean, very I, frustrating it's also but i and, and i agree but it's also about money and they they have pushed some of these books i don't think they pushed omega men like they probably should have i'll agree with you well, on omega that. men though again it's critical acclaim and everything else everybody loves it well, why he, okay here's the difference then why are people buying black canary but not buying omega men because black canary pie has a female antagonist well, well, well we know we know it we we know it we know it does cuz we've been reading it right. but but here's the deal Arrow has Arrow's part of the reason Black Canary is selling. I know people say that that doesn't make a difference. I'm sorry, it does. It makes a little bit of a difference in this instance because that well, character has well, I say, I a say reawakening. Whole, you know what I mean? I see the whole female protagonist thing for for the reason of we're in that age now where there's a lot more female readers and we're getting to that age now where we're finally getting strong female characters and Black Canary is one of them. So that's why it's selling, you know what I I'm think, saying? I think that if it was Green Lantern and the Omega Men, would we be talking differently? Probably because you have the whole Green Lantern. I think I think part of the Omega Man thing is people are like, they look at the Omega Man like, oh, well, what is this? You don't know. Well, unless you're a hardcore comics fan, you don't know who the hell the Omega Men are, okay? So yeah. if you walk into your local shop, you see the Omega Men on the shelf next to Batman or Superman or Green Lantern or Flash or Black Canary, what names do you recognize and what names do you not recognize? Exactly. That's part of the problem. Now, Kyle Rayner's in it. We know that because we're reading it. But it was Nobody Kyle, else now, knows that. Now, go back to your Green Lantern comment. If it was Kyle Rayner in the Omega Men... That might have worked. No. That might have worked because people Kyle Rayner's more popular than a lot of people think. Yeah, I think that you could actually put him in a Green Lantern movie, and people would care a lot about that. Now, so, so I'm not saying I'm not saying I agree with anything that's going on. I'm just trying to play devil's advocate here. Oh yeah, and I'm, we're trying to get to the bottom of this because this is a book we'd like to see saved, or at least let it go digital, man. Yeah, you do. I mean, you do the Arkham books digitally. You do Injustice digitally. So just do that. But one thing we know that probably won't be going on now, Nick, is Pacific Rim Two. Yeah, so Pacific Rim Two was slated to come out August fourth of twenty seventeen, before it was pulled off from the schedule from the schedule about a week or so ago. And now, according to the Hollywood Reporter, the film production has been suspended indefinitely. Now, I saw Pacific Rim, James. I'm not sure if you have if you saw Pacific Rim. It's been a while, man. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so. Pacific, it's it's not surprising that Pacific Rim 2, the production on it, was halted and or suspended indefinitely because here's the thing. Guillermo del Toro 
is directing this. Guillermo del Toro has a million projects. Yep. Guillermo del Toro is the Colin Bond of film and TV. No doubt about it, yeah. And so him doing all these different projects, he has no time. Bigger thing, though, is the fact that look at the first Pacific Rim film. I really wasn't a big fan of it. And, well, I, thought, I, mean, and, I, thought, and I thought that the way that Pacific Rim 1 ended... There's no way they could have done a sequel. There's no way. I'm, well, I'm, I'm going to spoil the ending right now. They blow up the entire kaiju base. Like, the entire family of kaijus. Just gone. Blown up. There's well, no fucking way you can do a sequel. Here's the deal, man. I mean, even if they didn't do that, do we need a Pacific Rim 2? We no. really don't. And remember when they said, I don't know if it was a Comic-Con or if it was before that, how they were like, oh, well, uh, maybe it was Charlie Hunnam that came out and said, he's like, well, we're going to have less robots in this movie. Why? Why? That's, That's why the whole want. point. Yeah. And again, let's go back to the money thing again. This would be an expensive movie to make. Well, that's the thing. That's what I was about to get to. Now, the cost of Pacific Rim 1 was $190 million. Now... The release itself domestically earned just $101 million, American, of course, in American. That's an $89 million loss domestically. However, yep. the thing that saved it was the fact that it did strong business in China, where it grossed $111 million, so pretty much worldwide it made $411 million. But again, domestic is what matters most. Right, and we've we said that mostly. a lot, yeah. Exactly, and an $89 million hit, dude. Yeah, that that's a lot. And I mean, do you want to go see a movie where robots just pummel each other? Sure, that can be sure. fun sometimes. But when you're talking about, you know, you and a buddy or your significant other going to the movies, you're talking about dropping 50 bucks once you get tickets and and snacks and stuff like that. That's a big investment well, to make the, for a movie that's good, that for a movie like that for me. Well, well, a movie that's based I mean, like like it's a whole Godzilla effect. When people go see a movie about kaiju's and mechs that are the size of like a thousand story buildings pretty much you know which is pretty fucking tall by the way i think it probably like reaches the tower of babel heavens kind of thing but anyways here's the thing though with this is you look at this you what do you want you want action you want robot on robot yeah, fighting you exactly. want kaijus destroying cities you want monsters fighting each other we don't want the fucking humans we no. don't give a shit. I've been saying that about Transformers movies for years now. Give me the Transformers. Go wherever you need to go to get the people out of the picture. Just give me Transformers because they can carry a movie on their own. Stop it. Exactly, exactly. Now, here's another interesting thing also according to Hollywood Report. Speaking of Transformers, so Hasbro has their whole hand in Transformers and G.I. Joe, correct? Yep. Oh, yeah. Well, according to the Hollywood Reporter... Stanley Weston, who created the concept of, quote, manufacturing and selling male action figures, wearing and carrying miniaturized versions of the uniforms, insignias, emblems, and equipment of each of the different branches of the U.S. Armed Forces 60 years ago, is seeking to obtain the rights of the $100 million G.I. Joe franchise from Hasbro. That's very interesting because... There's precedent for this. I mean, there was a lawsuit, I think, that uh, in the mid-70s when it came to He-Man and Mattel. And Mattel actually ended up winning the case because of the work-made-for-hire yeah. uh, law that was going on. So we could see that happen here in G.I. Joe. But, I mean, other than the money, let's throw the money out yeah. the window for a second. And let's think about this. I look Why now? Because I look at... 
I look at Stanley Weston as Liam Neeson from Taken, where his daughter's been taken by Hasbro and is pretty much just being tortured with horrendous films and shit like that. And he's like, I don't know who you are. Well, I know you're Hasbro. But I can, if you're looking for a good summer blockbuster, you won't find it. I will find you, and I will buy my property back. <laughs> right, but despite them being critically, you know, very criticized, they made money. Right, They sadly. still they, made they, money. They made, sadly, they made money. So, I mean, it's hard to argue with that. They, they're they making money, but I and that's kind of one of the reasons I think you'd want to get it back. But I think that's going to be one of the reasons it's going to be hard for them to get it back, because... They're making money. If this was a deal where, like, let's say that Marvel went to Sony tomorrow and said, look, this whole Fantastic Four thing, not working out. How about we take that back off your hands and here's a dollar figure? Yeah. You don't think Sony, I mean, excuse me, you don't think Fox wouldn't think about that for a minute? Right. They wouldn't think about selling it back knowing, okay, let's get, we can get cut bait here. Now, but because these are making money, even though they weren't the best of movies, they're making money, so Hasbro's not going to go, you know what? We should really get rid of this G.I. Joe thing. Right. It's not and, working and, out. And <laughs> Right. And, you know, remember, Hasbro just had Star Wars Friday. <laughs> yeah, so, exactly. And yeah. I mean, you, want, you want to talk about bad movies, too. Let's go back to the He-Man thing for a second. Oh, that Masters of the Universe movie was one of the worst movies ever, as far as adaptations of things oh, that we loved as kids. It was bad. Really? I mean, I thought you loved Dolph Lundgren. I do not. Oh. <laughs> It was not a good movie. I mean, people think it's a cult classic. Whatever. Wasn't a good movie. I really hope that the new one is is a lot better. So, I'm actually glad that they're redoing it because, wow. So, if it was that instance, I could see it. The only thing I hope... This is... This is, this is oh, I'm kind of playing devil's advocate a little bit as you did with the first story we did. Say he gets... Say he gets the rights back, okay? okay. Say, for instance, he gets all the G.I. Joe properties. That's going to cause, I think, a bit of a stir because, remember, if he gets the rights, he's the only person with those rights to those right. characters. Right. So when he releases something that's G.I. Joe related, prices of stuff could be going up. Uh, nobody. Also, when you're looking at something along the lines of maybe art or something like that, who knows? You know, saying, well, you can't draw these characters because I own the rights to them. Well, and it's there's a, a difference very between, slippery slope. Right, and there's a difference between rights and distribution rights. So what he right. would have to do is if he obtained the rights back is he'd have to find a, distri- a distributor. And you can bet your ass that Hasbro's not going to do it now because they're, he's going to take it from them. And, I mean, here's another thing. Does this affect IDW and the comics yeah. that they're running? Because don't forget, we're getting... Remember the G.I. Joe Transformers crossover that they did, whether you liked it or not? They were still able to do it because... That was all owned in an umbrella. So if Hasbro loses the rights to G.I. Joe, does then, by association, IDW lose the rights like Dark Horse did when Marvel acquired Star Wars? Exactly. And that's the that's thing, too. It's like you look at this whole rising against a slippery slope either way. Um, you know, people can be upset either way. Well, I mean, does this help? <sighs> I mean, think really think about it. I Just because he's really, the creator, think, does this help? I th- if you're a fan... This gives you, I think, false hope because you're like, okay, because whenever, whenever you're a fan of something and the rights go back to the original person, your immediate thought is, okay, this is going to be totally ten. Yeah, oh, we're home again. This is the yeah. way it should be kind of thing. For example, like, Spider- like Sony got the, some, like, the rights sort of of Spider-Man back to, you know, they gave it back to Marvel yeah, a little in bit. A, in a way. But yeah. that doesn't mean 
Spider-Man couldn't still suck. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, this is not a gimme. And I think that we've been trying to say that ever since that happened, is that just because Marvel's getting it doesn't mean this is going to work out. Yeah. This could just be one of those characters that just isn't going to work anymore for whatever reason. Well, speaking of characters that are working out our final story this week, so we have the whole Lego Dimensions video game, correct? That's coming yeah. out soon. Yeah. And it comes out September 27th for the Xbox 360 in next-gen platforms as well. Same thing with PS3 as well. So they officially announced on Wednesday, this is an announcement from Warner Bros. Interactive Entertainment and TT Games, the lineup for the Lego Dimensions video game cast list. You ready for this? This is insane. Just listen to these names for a second. You have Michael J. Fox and Christopher Lloyd reprising their roles from Back to the Future in the game. You have Chris Pratt, Elizabeth Banks, Alison Brie, and Charlie Day from the Lego movie. So odds are they're going to be reprising their roles yep. from the Lego movie. Peter Capaldi, Jenna Coleman, and Michelle Gomez from Doctor Who. So they're going to be a Doctor Who thing in there. Bryce Dallas Howard, Irfan Khan from Jurassic World. There's going to be a Jurassic World segment in there. You know... Steven, Steven Merchant, Ellen McClain from the Portal Games, Frank Welker, and Matthew Lillard from Scooby-Doo. Troy Baker is going to be voicing Batman. Sorry, Will Arnett fans. Uh, and Tara Strong will be Harley Quinn. And she uh, is Harley Quinn. Yeah. I'll tell you that right now. Yeah. Uh, and they're joined by Joel McHale as the LEGO Dimensions Robot Guide XPO. And Gary Oldman as villain Lord Vortech. That's not even all either, because no. there's also people from The Simpsons, Ghostbusters, Lord of the Rings that are going to be part of this. They haven't even announced the whole cast. Here's my question. How the hell did they pull this off? <laughs> they have a big checkbook, let's put it that way. I mean, seriously, now you know that some of these people aren't going to play wonder, major part, roles, well, but still. Me, part of me wonders, here's the thing, though. When, okay, well, like Michael J. Fox, Christopher Lloyd... Different, kind of, I put them different, but let's look at something like uh, Doctor Who and Jurassic World. So we had all these, you know, Lego sets for Jurassic World and everything else. I wonder if in the agreement between the properties and Lego that it was, okay, we'll get the, we can do these, these sets, these Doctor Who sets and everything else. However... This includes the video games. Yeah. And we get the right the, yep. the and and pretty much like it's in the contract where we do a video game with all these properties. Chris Pratt has to be in it and he has to reprise his role from Jurassic World. I think or, that or probably had something to do with the fil film rights too, but yeah. yeah. Uh, I think I think you're exactly right. I think it's I think it was written in. I yeah. absolutely think you're that's right. That's the but only way. That's the only way. You know what's funny though? Why is it? And this goes for the Lego movie, too. Yeah. Why is it that Legos seem to be the only place where everybody can come play nicely like Who Framed Roger Rabbit? Yeah, right? You know what I mean? It's like we've got Doctor Who mixing with Jurassic World. You've got Back to the Future mixing with DC Comics stuff and even Scooby-Doo. Why is this okay for Legos but not anything else? Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like this is where everybody can play. But then, you know, once we put the Legos away, you guys have to go your separate ways because you guys aren't allowed to play together because of all this legal mumbo-jumbo. I just want to be in the booth. Okay, here's the thing. If you could be in the booth with any of these people. Okay, so for example, like, let's, let's, let's group these people together by the okay. project. So, like, you have, like, you know, you could be in the booth with Michael J. Fox, Christopher Lloyd. You're seriously going to ask me this question. I'm going to ask you this question. Okay. Who would you choose? How can I not choose Michael J. Fox and Christopher Lloyd? As big of a Back to the Future fan as I am, that would be a huge, huge dream come true for me. Because right. just from that one movie alone, 
It's iconic. So, I mean, yeah. I, get, I get these other ones, and I know that there's Whovians going, you've got to be kidding me. No. Well, Cody, well that's more Cody's realm. Yeah. Cody would, would go with Capaldi and, and Coleman. Of and, course. Well, where would, where would you go? Let, let's, let's include <sighs> Ghostbusters, Lord of the Rings, and Simpsons, too, even though we don't know. We can, yeah. assume, we can assume who might be from there. We won't do that on the show, but we can, you, you can kind of assume. So, what do you think? Where, where would you go? Huh. I would go... Yeah, I got to think about this. I mean, it's it's tough because I mean, you got Chris Pratt twice. I'm not, right. I'm not you know? do. I'm not doing this to be different. I'm actually serious about this. I totally do. Chris Pratt, Elizabeth Banks, Allison Brie, and Charlie yeah. Day. That would just be fun. Oh, that'd be great. It, that would be fun. I mean, you got you got a Fisher! lot. You got a lot of personalities in there, man. So that that would be a fun booth to be in for sure. Yeah. Exactly, dude. It's I, just it's just amazing that they put this. By the way, when I yelled spaceship, I, my neighbors are probably like above him and next to me. They're probably like, "What the fuck is going on in that apartment?" Well, that goes on for other things too. I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah. I just, I just, I seriously, I can't, I can't believe that they even pulled it's, this it's, off. Yeah, it's it's kind of like it's kind of like forgetting Sarah Marshall. Yeah, we've been getting complaints. There's a woman crying, you know, and 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 they're coming from yeah. your room. Yeah. Oh no, that, that that that's just me. That's that's just me. It's Jason Siegel just crying. <laughs> that was a great movie, by the way. Not nerd related, but a great movie. You should go watch it. Yeah. Um. There's just. I don't even know how well this game's gonna sell. I'm guessing pretty good because the Lego games sell. always I'm do not, pretty know, well. I, I don't play Lego games. I might actually just buy this. I, I would almost want to buy it just for the whole Back to the Future well, thing. Well, because a lot of new games aren't coming out for your PS3 anymore. So you and and like, this one is. Yeah, like, I'm kind of included until I can do this uh, now. until they announce it like Mortal Kombat did, where it's like, yeah, we're not going to do it. It's only going to be for new gen. Yeah, let's hope that that doesn't happen. I I just think that it's <laughs> I just think that it's cool that they were able to put this together at all. And I don't know if people made concessions, you know, salary wise to be, be a part of this. At this point, dude, it's Lego. I don't think salary would really matter. You know what I'm saying? I I guess maybe I'm underestimating how much money Lego really has. They have a fucking amusement park called Lego. Maybe I, maybe I am. And I know how expensive the sets are too. So maybe I'm just not understanding how much money they have. Yeah, that that's a possibility because they've got a lot of irons in the fire, but that's going to do it for nerd news. But I got to tell you, we've got some irons in the fire up next. We're going to be talking to the creator and executive producer of Blind Spot. It's Martin Giro, and he's here with us next on Down and Nerdy. Hey, listeners, this is Peter Shinkoda from Daredevil. I play Nobu, and you are listening to Down and Nerdy Podcast. Well, you've seen the promos, you've heard the hype. We're getting ready for Blind Spot on NBC Monday night at 10 o'clock, and we are just so honored to be joined by the creator and executive producer of the show, Martin Garrow. Martin, how are you doing today? I'm doing very good. Good to be here. Thank you, guys. Oh, no problem, Martin. Again, so what's it been like, you know, leading up to the premieres coming up, of course, on the 21st of this month? So what's it been like kind of getting all the promotional stuff out there and getting the, you know, this whole media thing going for the show? I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty incredible, you know, like usually you really just have to like beg and plead for the network to do anything to just like have them have people know a new show is coming out. But, um, you know, they really, uh, their, their tactic uh, was inescapable, which I think is pretty fantastic. So like if you watch any of the NBC universal channels or if, you know, you're living in certainly in New York and Los Angeles, we're just everywhere with billboards and buses and stuff like that. So, you know, it's, it's fantastic. You basically have to be living in a bag, not to know that blind spot (laughs) isn't coming up on NBC. 
Somebody texted me the other day that they were watching football and they were like, I get it. I will watch the show. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're really looking forward to it, but you've done a lot of other work you've in comedy not too long ago before you started doing Blind Spot and of course Dark Matter, which is uh, which airs on sci fi. So what's it like yeah, to kind of get what what's it like to kind of get back to the action adventure sci fi realms, which you haven't really done since Stargate in two thousand nine? Oh, it's been so fun. I mean, you know, like Stargate was one of the most fun jobs I've ever had in my life. I mean, you know, to be able to do, you know, the, the what I loved about Stargate was it was a bit of a kitchen sink thing where, you know, like we would do a Western one week and then like a quiet two-hander and then a giant action movie and then a political thriller. So so that to be able to like genre jump so much in there and tell a bunch of different stories is uh, is really challenging and great for a writer. And so, you know that's kind of what blind spot is i mean you know it's a it's a it's you know we're we're a little more focused on the the character mythology and the week to week serialization than than stargate was or mm-hmm. um uh but you know it's 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 really fan- it's been it's been so much fun so as james mentioned this is the first time since 2009 you're working with you know within the action adventure sci-fi realm what is it about the genre that's so special to you well, I just like, you know, it's, it's, I just came off a show called the LA complex, which was like, um, you know, it was a straight up character drama, you know, super, super soap. Um, you know, it had a lot of humor and stuff, but it was, mm-hmm. you know, it was just about people and their problems. And like, by the end of the, you know, we did two seasons and by the end of the second season, I was like, Oh man, murder someone or so hard to find increasing jeopardy week to week with people that are just you know so i was like promise i turned to my frequent writing you know collaborator brendan gall was like next next show we do it's got to have just some built-in jeopardy every week so to have to have that to have have the stakes be so high and, and see how that affects people emotionally has been so so fun to get back into and you know because for us you can't just like throw in a car chase or a giant explosion. Like if it doesn't have right. some sort of yeah. resonance to the character, mm-hmm. then it does. It doesn't make sense. Like you can't. So so you know we've come up with an engine here where yeah there are cases that we solve every week, but there are, they have deep deep personal stakes for every character involved, which is mm-hmm. you know it's really that's next to impossible to do on a normal procedural. Talking to Martin Giro, who is of course the executive producer and creator of Blind Spot, which can be seen on NBC September twenty first. So, Martin, one of the other previous shows I want to talk about before we dive into Blind Spot, real quick, uh, is you helped run all three seasons of the HBO series Bored to Death, which of course starred Jason Schwartzman, Ted Danson, yeah. Zach Galifianakis. Um, were there any hijinks on the set? And if so, what's the most memorable one? <laughs> Well, the most memorable ones are ones I probably shouldn't say publicly. I mean, you know. <laughs> <laughs> To be honest, there weren't a lot of hijinks on set. It was that was like one of the most professional. Those three guys like really had a contest to see who could be the most professional, nicest human being in the world. Like it was, it was the most no drama uh, set I'd ever been on. They they were just incredible. They all got along so much. But you know, I had some some pretty wonderful adventures with Jonathan Ames throughout New York during the three years that we we made that show. That were, you know. Were, that were fueled by more, you know. Yeah. Oh, were yeah. Fueled by more than just, uh, you know, uh, uh, excitement. Let's put it that way. <laughs> Explanation not needed. Message received. <laughs> well, for anybody that is unaware, and I can't imagine why you would be, Blind Spot follows Jane Doe, which was played by Jamie Alexander, who's lost her memory and doesn't even know her name. And even though that's a concept we've kind of seen in other projects, you've managed to put your own unique spin on it. So expi- explain what your vision was with that concept. 
Well, I, I wanted to do, I'm a huge fan of like puzzle stuff, you know, like I love Goonies, obviously, mm-hmm. uh, and, and, therefore, and therefore, like I love, you know, National Treasure more than like a grown man probably should. <laughs> uh, all the Dan Brown books, like Michael Crichton stuff, like there's just a, that ability to, you know, have like just just on the edge of science stuff and then just some fantastic puzzle stuff. I don't know. It's really exciting for me. So I've been trying to figure out how to do a show like that for forever, but it's really hard to keep that puzzle working week to week. And then at the same time, you know, I was I was living. I did a crazy thing when I was running on board to this, where I basically lived in Times Square. It was it was one of the dumbest things I've ever done. Oh wow! Was there when the, they they there were it was an attempted bombing of the Viacom building. Do you remember that? Yeah. And they cleared yeah. out Times Square. And, um, uh, and so that image has just always been with me. And so I don't know. I just thought, well, what if they went to go dismantle a bomb in Times Square and it wasn't a bomb, it was a person. And then and I thought, well, what if that person had like Kurt Weller, FBI, tattooed on their back? And then you're like, oh, why? Why this guy? And then I was like, well, wait a second. What if, their, what if her entire body was tattooed? We could do like a whole hundreds and hundreds of tattoos. Yeah, of treasure yeah. So that was the opening really just came to me. And then it was, it took a couple months to figure out like, okay, how is this a show? What, who did this? What's going on? Why, 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 uh, it's gotta be a solid reason behind all these things. Right. Speaking of times, uh, you know, I, go ahead. No, I was going to say, speaking of Times Square, where you basically left her there in the bag in the middle of Times Square, how many New Yorkers do you think would walk right by before they even noticed what was going on? <laughs> well, we, we shot that with a lot of New Yorkers walking right by, and no one, no one noticed. <laughs> <laughs> the early part of the pilot was uh, there. There's, you know, the in the wide shot, an occasional real person would walk by when we were not, you know, and ruin a take or something, and they would just not, they wouldn't know. Oh wow. yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's, it's it's New Yorkers for me. I'm a New Yorker myself, so I mean that that's definitely the mentality. Uh, they have now speaking of Jamie Alexander, of course, again she plays Jane Doe in the show, and she actually has a major physical scene within the first episode. So what's it like working with an actor and actress who already has experience with those types of scenes uh, going to a project, especially like this one? Well, I think that's something that really drew us to Jamie in the first place was that, you know, she she's so incredibly physically capable. But, you know, a lot of physically capable actresses can't also pull off, like, the intense vulnerability that this character needs. You know, like, she's... Mm. That's a terrifying situation that that character finds herself. Like, no memories, you know, freezing cold in the middle of Times Square. It's a traumatic thing. And so um, you have to play both sides of that coin. They're equally important for Jane. She's, a, you know, we're trying to make her as three-dimensional as possible. And so... What was great about Jamie was that she's, you know, a great actress who also happens to be like incredibly physically capable. You know, oh, she yeah. was a wrestler in high school and obviously Lady Sif and stuff like that. So, um, but we, you know, we stripped her of her as guardian swords and now she's just got to do a lot of hand to hand. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Definitely. I mean, that's the thing is like I, when, I, when we when I watched the pilot and it was just something that was really, really amazing. And something that really stuck out to me too uh, was one of the many things I love about the, sh- the show is that where it takes the relationships between certain characters, and whether it's Jane, Dr. Bourne, who's yeah. played by, of course, uh, Riquelli Roach, or Weller and his partner Ramirez, who's played by Rob Brown, what's the key to not only creating memorable relationships and interactions on screen, but also making them real to the viewer and not outlandish at all? 
Well, that's the thing. I mean, you know, the, the premise of the show, when you tell it to people, sounds totally bonkers, and I'm, I'm totally aware of that. And so, you know, what we have to do on top of that is just ground everything else and make it super real. You know, like we're mm-hmm. going for like a Paul Greengrass, Michael Mann type of vibe, you know. So, oh, yeah. So you're, we're finding, A, you, you find performers that are just fantastic. And I mean, like, you know, uh, when you make a pilot like this, it's very difficult to get anything approved, you know, because so many people have uh, a say over casting, over lots of things. Right. And um, I don't know how, but we got our first choice with everybody, you know, like you wow. mentioned Katie wow. before. But we also got Sullivan Stapleton, you know, who is just an extraordinary guy, that, you know, and, uh, you know, if you saw, you know, the 300 sequel or have been a fan of Strike Back, you know, you know, mm-hmm. he's physically capable, but he's also got this like incredible depth as an actor and, and can play the trauma that that character has, has encountered incredibly well. And then, you know, you got like Rob Brown, Audrey Sparza, you know, Academy Award nominee. Yeah. Uh, you know, Mich- uh, Marianne Jean-Baptiste. And, you know, Ashley Johnson's number six on the call sheet. So, like, that's, that's crazy to have such a deep bench of great performers. So they really do an amazing job of just, like, grounding the show in an emotional reality that I think the, the you know, the viewers buy. It feels, it feels real to them, so it feels real to the viewers. And then, and then part of the fun for us is exactly what you're saying, which is, like, you know, this isn't just a procedural. Like, it's a, it's a character drama for us. So the, how, how this event, you know, is, becomes like kind of an earthquake in the middle of everybody's relationships and everybody's lives is, is the fun of the show, you know? We're talking to Martin Guerra, who is the creator and executive producer of Blindspot, which is coming to NBC on Mondays, t- September 21st at 10 p.m. You talked about Sullivan Stapleton, of course, who plays Kurt Weller. And we see in the pilot, he has a very rough exterior, but he also is very cautious with his team. Yeah. So how much will we find out about his backstory and maybe something that might have happened to him in the past in future episodes? Uh, you know, listen, a show like this, this is the other thing, like, you know, with these serialized shows that have, you know, that's, that are very mysterious, a lot of people are like, oh, man, I'm going to watch, like, the first season, I'm going to be lucky if I get two things that really mean anything. You're going to know pretty much who Weller thinks Jane is in the second episode. You know, like, we, we turn cards, we're not, we're not into breadcrumbs, like, we're into whole loaves, every episode. There's a lot of story that we've come up with, and so there's a lot to get through. And so I think I think these re- these you know these revelations will be often and satisfying. And so so yeah, I think you get into why Kurt is so stoic and um, uh, and and so uh, stern in the first episode, and you really see a, a kind of more emotional side to him in the second episode. And then once you realize once you realize who he thinks Jane is, it becomes a very very personal story for him. Oh, exactly. And the thing is about the show, too, is, of course, it's set in New York. And, you know, we talked about New York earlier. You get the film in and around some very recognizable places. So as an, an executive producer, what's it like to be able to use a city like New York, not only as your playground, but also in a way to make it as a character as well? Yeah, I mean, it's a dream come true. I, I You know, we, we got to do it really effectively on Board to Death when we shot there. And uh, But Board to Death was, you know, didn't wasn't going for the kind of like cinematic scope necessarily that, that this show is. So we're, we're getting, I'm getting to use it in kind of a different way. And also, of all the shows that shoot in New York, you know, you got, you got Gotham, you got Blacklist, you got, you know, The Good Wife. None of those shows take place in New York. So we're one of the only shows that shoots in New York that can actually like, you know, lean into the fact that you can see the Freedom Tower. Oh, yeah, the, oh, yeah the definitely. Of Liberty. 
and uh, and you know see see the Empire State Building and shoot something near the Chrysler Building and just go super wide on the streets and see you know all the way down the boulevard. So it's um, it's been extraordinary, and I mean the city is so photogenic to not have to hide it to really lean into being there being by the water and uh, 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 out in the birds, you know, it's, it's, it's got a lot to use. Well, without spoiling anything, it looks like in the pilot we might actually get a look at who the main antagonist is for the series. But one of the great things about this show as we were watching was it really keeps you not knowing it's really going on, which we loved about it. So how much are we going to get revealed about the person that I'm referring to early on in the season? I think you know who I'm talking about. I, I think I do, but what's fun about the show is it could be a couple of people. But um, that's yeah, that's uh, my point. Yeah, yeah. you're you're I, you're gonna again. I, if it's the person I'm thinking of, you're you're gonna find a lot out in the first two or three episodes um, uh, about. Well, you'll, I don't want <laughs> yeah. to. Yeah, I, I think I think we got a good amount in the pilot at the end. But again, I'm I'm trying to I'm trying to paint a picture here without using too many brush strokes. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> <I understand. laughs> Well, here's the thing I will say. I mean, the, the crux of the first season, the main, the, main, the main question of the first season is who is Jane Doe? Right. And, um, uh, you know, you, we'll get real close to answering that by the end of the first season. And there's a huge, huge reveal by episode 10. So, Martin, where can people reach you on social media? I'm at martingero.com, M-A-R-T-I-N-G-E-R-O. And then you can also follow at Blindspot Room, which is our writer's room here, as far as well as at NBC Blindspot. Watch Blindspot on Monday, September the 21st at 10 p.m. Eastern. Also, Martin has Dark Matter, which, congratulations, has been renewed for a second season on Sci-Fi. Yeah. So we can't congratulations, wait to, sir. Can't wait to get more information on that. Also, again, Martin Garrow, executive producer and creator of Blindspot. Martin, thank you so much for taking the time to hang out with us this week. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure, guys. So, James, when we do go to New York City Comic Con... Um, quick thing, if I ever can't get a hold of you, I'm going to have to look in Times Square because you're probably like in a body bag somewhere. And it's going to be very difficult because I typically have my phone on vibrate or on silent, so <laughs> yeah. nobody's going to find me for the longest time and I'll probably end up in a dumpster on t- in Times Square or something probably. like that. But, Probably. I mean, thank you so much to Martin Garrow for coming on the show and talking about Blind Spot. I mean, it looks like it's going to be a really great show. Oh, exactly. We always saw the pilot, and it was just one of those things where it grabs you. It's it's instantly awesome. You don't know where it's going to go. Uh, Jamie Alexander is just an amazing job, amazing job by the cast, everybody. There was a lot of tense parts in it as right. well. And I want people to, I don't want people to get the impression because again, we've had the benefit of being able to see the pilot. I don't want you to go into this thinking, oh, really? This has kind of been done before. We've done this concept. It's Trust different. Me, it's different. This time, I mean, you you do see that you have seen this before. You haven't seen this before. I'm yeah. telling you that right now. This this show, even though it carries like I like we were talking about with Martin Garrow, it, it carries on a familiar concept. But it's such a different spin on it, which was such a nice surprise when we got to watch the pilot. There's a phrase he used that made me so happy, and it's that we're not interested in giving breadcrumbs, we're interested in giving loaves. Yes. That means there's going to be no there's no slow burn in any part of the season or the show at all. We're going to go right balls to the wall, give you what you want, because you know we're in a society where we want now, 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 yep, now, now. Yep. We don't want that. A lot of people can handle that slow burn. And with a show like this, it's very fast-paced. You know, it doesn't draw anything out. And it just works. The series works. I don't care what your plans are for Monday, September 21st at 10 p.m. Yeah. You're going to be on your couch watching Blindspot on NBC because, trust me, 
You're going to be glad that you did. This is not a show that you're going to want to miss. And that's going to do it for this week's edition of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. And thanks to NBC and Martin Giro for coming on and talking about Blind Spot, which can be seen on NBC at 10 p.m. Eastern on September the 21st. Again, great stuff by Martin. Thank you all for following us on Facebook. Go to our Facebook page if you aren't following us yet. And why aren't you? But uh, anyways, go to Facebook.com slash DownNerdy. Also on Twitter at DownNerdy757. I'm on Twitter at Merck with one arm. James? I'm at James Ace with them. And you can also pick us up online at downandnerdypodcast.com. You can find out all the information on this week's shows. Past interviews that we've done are also on there as well. So and you can catch Martin Guerra, and then you can catch one of our other interviews while you're at it. Also, you can find out all about what we're doing, what we're doing around town. Maybe we've got a live appearance or something. We'll let yep. you know about that. Anything that's happening with the show, downandnerdypodcast.com. And if you have a fan question or comment, feel free to call us anytime at our toll-free number. It's 757-512-8229. And when you call, you get James's lovely voice saying you've contacted us, just leave your question or comment at the end of the tone. Well, hey, we might even air it on the show the following week. So who knows? You always want to be on the podcast. Well, now's your chance. Just call us at that number. Again, the number is 757-512-8229. And also, hey, we have our own online store, of course, powered by Amazon. Go there as well. There's a shop link on our Facebook page. But as I always, nerds and nerdettes, I leave you with this. Press safe comic book reading. Always beg and board your comics.